Hello everyone, welcome to Take the Black Live, the one and only show on the entire internet where we talk about things like fantasy, sci-fi, movies, TV, Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, Star Wars, George R. R. Martin, award shows, um, COVID-19, how to touch the movie industry, Netflix, The Umbrella Academy, anything you're interested in, we are covering here. I am Dan Selke, editor of WinnersComing.net, and I am here with not Mia Johnson as usual because she is away on vacation this week. But here with WIC writer Corey Smith. Corey, thank you for coming in here today. How are you? I love uh, the view from your penthouse high rise. Yes, it, it pays very well to uh, host. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to come on and chat a couple topics we got going on. Yeah, there's some cool stuff going on. As, as always, you know, it, I, I've said this to Mia before, like, at some point, I thought, like, news might slacken off, like, in the era of coronavirus. It really hasn't, though. There's always, I mean, look, there's always someone making some kind of ruckus about something, isn't there? It's very hard to avoid that. Yeah, I mean, maybe we would have had some stories that drown out other stories or whatever if corona wasn't going on. But I definitely think there's always going to be something going on to talk about, so. As long as the internet is this. And thanks for watching, everybody who's there. Uh, hi, Lisa. Hey, Mariah. Hey, Yamir. Uh, hey, everyone else watching. And uh, if you have opinions, comment. We'll try to get back to you. And let's get into it. Okay, the first thing we got to talk about is A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones related. So, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to try to break this down without going into too much detail because I could go into a lot of detail. Hey, Julie. Ju Julie, it's good to see you. I, I, I hope you're well. Um, this past weekend... Uh, the Hugo Awards were held. They were a yearly award show that honors the best in science fiction and fantasy um, writing. So stories, novels, TV shows, etc. Um, George R. R. Martin is a huge fan. He writes, I mean, you know, he writes a lot about Worldcon, going to Worldcon, the Hugos. He's like very into the minutia of the rules and the history. Like the amount of <laughs> blog posts he's written over the years where he like talks about obscure Hugo rules and isn't talking about the winds of winter. If I had like a nickel for every one, I'd be pretty rich man. Um, and yes, Julie says, hi, Richard, our, 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 our producer, Richard, a hand for him. Anyway, this year, obviously, like most events, the Hugos couldn't be held um, in person. They're going to be held in New Zealand. But hey, 2020, hey, COVID-19, hey, coronavirus, not happening. So they were held remotely, and George R. R. Martin was chosen as Toastmaster, which basically, like, you know, Billy Crystal hosting the Oscars, or or whoever. He was the host. And um, he hosted them. He did a lot of pre-recorded segments. He gave out the awards. And he got a good old-fashioned internet backlash to a lot of what he said. So first, why don't we just go over kind of what the concerns were, and then we can chat about them a bit. Well, you know, the one that I found just absolutely hilarious is that people said that he took too long with his jokes and that he talked too much. And it's like, have you, do you have any idea who George R.R. R. Martin is? The guy will huh. turn a short story into five or seven novels that he's never going to finish. So, I mean, it, that part of it was to me was just like, who did you think you were 
you know, having to host. I mean, obviously the guy's going to take, I mean, he even said in his blog, he thinks long jokes are, are funnier than, than short jokes. And so it's like, I, I found that part to be kind of hilarious, but the, the name I thing, mean, I'll let you explain the name thing a little bit more. That part was a little more concerning to me. I thought, I mean, I find it kind of hilarious, but I also like, look, if I was in an audience for an award show and sat through three and a half hours of George R. R. Martin explaining the history to me, I mean, I would say I could have seen this coming, but I also would have been annoyed. It's like that is a very long time. Um, yeah, at least though they were all, you know, everybody was at home so you could get up and, you know, walk, <laughs> yeah, and walk around, and, you know, something else going on. But yeah, I mean, the the length thing, it's just like, I mean, come on. Yeah, you should have seen it coming. The guy is, you know, <laughs> he takes forever to talk about everything and he'll pound out 5,000 words on, you know, York Jets winning a game or or losing or something like that. It's like, I, I don't know. I, I found that part to be kind of, you know, hilarious. He'll write a whole book about Targaryen history that he just like has in his spare kind of notes and put it out. It just that, that definitely is the kind of guy he is. Anyway, yeah. but the, but the more substantive allegations or the more substantive criticisms were basically, and I mean, this is interesting if a little convoluted. So here we go. So the, what he was accused of was basically kind of talking about the history of the awards, which, you know, includes a lot of science fiction authors who are, you know, long dead, kind of older white guys, some of whom, you know, like, unfortunately, many people, not all, um, in time, in certain times, some of them had some really, really horrible, aggressive, terrible opinions. And George R. R. Martin was mentioning people like Robert Heinlein, who was a science fiction author who's kind of accused of being fashy here and there, of John W. Campbell, who was a um, prominent writer and editor who had an award named after him until recently when the winner kind of excoriated him for being a fascist, for being aggressive. And he had really like straight up reprehensible beliefs about slavery and stuff. And George R. R. Martin was just kind of telling funny anecdotes about these people. And the criticism basically was it really contrasted with the tenor of the acceptance speeches because the Hugos are in this weird space where it's a very old award show. It's like decades and decades old. It was started back in this different time of science fiction, but it was dominated by these kind of, you know, not that it's a bad thing to be an older white man, but like older white guys who definitely by today's standards and even in the case of like Campbell by yesterday's standards had some pretty seriously screwed up opinions. And then recently it's been more, um, uh, the, the, the Hugo's had, had, so yeah, been more inclusive and the writers who are, who are being rewarded are people who are, you know, writing stories and books that are kind of more forward thinking that have a lot to do with inclusivity, that have a lot to do with social justice themes, and a lot of the speeches were like that. So the the, the, the contrast was, here are all these people giving their acceptance speeches talking about social justice, inclusivity, like weighty issues. And then here comes George R. R. Martin in his middle remarks, talking about like, now in, you know, 1971, the Hugos were like this, and these authors were doing this and this and this, and I met John W. Campbell once, and we had drinks. That, I'm, I, I'm making up these stories, by the way. But this is like the general sense that I'm getting. And the, 
it it did it, it it was not a good fit. It did not contrast well. And there was also a thing about him mispronouncing a lot of names um, of both people who were of kind of diverse backgrounds and mispronouncing white um, winners, too. He just kind of mispronounced everything. That one I'm inclined to kind of give him benefit of the doubt on. I mean, he said I wasn't given a pronunciation guide for most of them. I was given the name. I had two minutes to, like, look at it and then read it out or two seconds to read it out. I'm not really going to get down on that one. Um, I do, like, my read is that this was a bad, like, not really reading the room, you know, but I don't think it was malicious. What do you think? No, I don't think it was malicious. He's got, you know, I, I forget off the top of my head, but he's got that writing uh, fellowship that he funds out of his own money. Yeah. Uh, that's specifically for, um, it, is it, it's either authors of color or authors or non-English authors uh, that write science fiction. And he basically funds them for a year to kind of just write and he pays for it out of his own pocket. Um, and so I don't think that he has that, but I, I do think, I mean, again, I almost think like, what did you expect by asking him to, you know, host the, the, the thing. And, and I will also in his defense, I don't understand why he couldn't have gotten the winner's list beforehand. Um, you know, maybe not. Yeah two weeks before or whatever, but you could have sent them the, the here's the winner list this morning. So you can sure. go over the names so that the presentation would be a little bit smoother. I think that you could trust him not to leak, you know, it's not like you're giving him to a reporter. You could trust the host of your event yeah. to, you know, so that he could practice the name. So I'll, I'll give him a little bit of a break on that. But as far as like reading the room and, and not, and telling jokes about the, the 1970s, I mean, it, it's the same thing on his blog. Every time he talks about the Hugos, yes. it's about the time in 1982 when he hosted a party in his hotel room. And, it's, you know, and so it's 5,000 words later. And so, I mean, I just don't know how much, you know, if that's what you were looking for, if you're looking for kind of a, a younger you know, voice that kind of knows some of these other authors. I don't know that you pick the right host, you know? Yeah. That's, that's not necessarily George's fault. Right. I mean, he is who he is and he knows the people that he knows he, and you know, also again, in his defense, I mean, he hasn't been able to go and enjoy those, those conventions. Yeah. Uh, like he used to. Right. Sure. I mean, just now he, both cousins of wins writing an age. Yeah, and he's and he's getting older, and he's obviously supposedly trying to finish wins a winner. Uh, so you know he doesn't. So all he knows are the people he back in the eighties and the nineties when he wasn't, you know, mega popular. So I, I don't know. I'm on the fence. Yeah, I think he he could have been a little bit more prepared, and he could have had uh, done a little bit better of a job and kept it a little shorter in between. Yeah, um, shorter, and the. The, the Oscar joke, I think he kind of got in trouble for the Oscar joke, yeah. which to me, I don't know. I mean, careful, Corey. Yeah, I mean, how many eunuchs are in his books, you know? And so to to think he wouldn't, well, all the Unsullied, you got literally thousands. <laughs> thousands an army. I mean, to think that he would, you know, that to be surprised that he's making a eunuch joke when, you know, some central characters in his books are eunuchs, it just, 
I, again, I don't know. I w- none of this was like shocking to me. You know, this all seemed on brand for who he is, you know, publicly. So I don't know. I mean, as Julie says, I kind of agree with this. I, I didn't see the awards, but he does tend to live in his own little bubble. I, I think yes. that, that, that sounds about right to me. Yes. Like, and like you said, he has that fellowship. Like a, a, a few years back, by the way, just a really quick detour into some of like the weird Hugo history. This thing has a lot of like big events in its past. Like there was a whole kerfuffle in like 2015 where there was like this kind of batch of Hugo voters who dubbed themselves the sad puppies and the rabid puppies who were very much kind of like, like feminist reactionaries. Like they wanted all these SJW warriors out of the Hugos and we're going to band together and vote in stuff. That's real science fiction, just like classic gatekeeping stuff. And it was like, it was a, a Hugo sci-fi story scandal. And George R. R. Martin argued very forcefully against that movement and set it up. A, his own award show to award people who would have been nominated if not for that kind of intervention and tried to level it out. So, and that's why I find like accusations of animus or like nefarious intention to be like really not really holding yeah. up. Yeah. And he was, he, he had that show and I, and I, again, I, I forget the, he had a show that was in development at HBO. Still does. Who fears death? Yeah, and it and he basically was just lending his power to this novel that was written by a woman of color, and he was just trying to get that show made. He didn't have it; wasn't his work. Um, and he so, still lives, I, so far as I know, yeah, it, right. And but I just don't think I yeah I don't see any kind of nefarious stuff. Maybe a little bit tone deaf, and maybe I'd say tone deaf. <laughs> Yeah, maybe unprepared um, and yeah, not reading the room really, but in living in the past, you could say those things, but I, I don't think you can jump to the, that he has some sort of racist or misogynistic agenda. You know, agenda. I just don't, I don't see that at all. I mean, like you said, uh, when that Hugo thing with the sad puppies, I mean, I think he wrote like 150,000 words. He on would that. not stop writing about it. Yeah. We calculated. We it were there. Yeah, and he was saying that anybody should be able to to come in regardless. And I mean, you look at his characters. I mean, he's got you know female characters in prominent roles and and all kinds of things like that. So I I don't buy that at all. I think he just was ill prepared and kind of a little you know tone deaf to what was actually going on. I, I basically agree with you, but you know, I mean, the internet. W- with a blowback that the whole point is kind of like to blow it up. Right. And so you had folks saying like, let's launch him into the sun. Let's like, there was one like really elaborate tweet by a Hugo winner. That was like, let's build something beautiful on the exoskeletons of these downed old guard authors. And I'm like, y'all are really creative. I appreciate that. But I I feel like you might be pointed at a portion a little bit. So that's my take on it. If any of you got comments, thoughts, um, I'd be curious to know any out there in the commento sphere. <sighs> um, I'm, I'm not sure if we showed it yet. Did, did, did we show the picture of him um, during the award ceremony in his yeah. literal like tinfoil hat over his ears? Yeah. I mean, if we, if we didn't, we'll see it now. Like th- th- that says it all to me. Like he, he thought he's being, be- he thought he's being Billy Crystal and like being really funny. He has no idea that people are out there being like, what are you doing? Yeah, I, I, 
I cut him some slack on this. I just I don't see it at all. I just think he was, you know, not prepared and yeah, like I said, couldn't read the room. So Oh, I think he prepared. I think he prepared a lot. I just think he prepared the wrong stuff. <laughs> well, maybe that's what it was, but yeah. I, I, I mean, I think he prepared three and a half hours of commentary. But at the end of the day, that's kind of where where I stand. And um we'll we'll see how it shakes down going forward. That's the George R. R. Martin controversy. Got got a got a good old fan cancellation mob on him. Love it. Love to love it. Um anyway, moving on, some other topics. Corey, did you hear yesterday that Disney, noted um, entertainment production studio and company, is going to release the really nice-looking live-action Mulan remake straight to streaming on Disney Plus rather than into theaters? Now, the reason this is important is because, obviously, like movies like this have been... We haven't gone to the movie theater in quite a long time because COVID-19 has shut everything down. Um, And these movies like Mulan, like Black Widow, keep getting pushed back over and over. And this is like a big moment because finally a studio like Disney is saying, we give up. Okay, we're not going to put this in theaters. We don't know when this is going to be over. We don't know when theaters are going to open up back again. We're going to release this on Disney+. Plus." For twenty nine ninety nine, for twenty nine ninety nine dollars, in addition to your Disney subscription, um, what do you make of this, Corey? It's a good move, bad move, inevitable move, sleazy move, integrity move. I think it's a good move, and I think it's an inevitable move. I think we should note that um, the thirty dollar charge does basically. It's not like a one-time fee. You basically get the movie as long as you have Disney+. Plus. Um, I mean, eventually it would have been added to Disney+. Plus. So, I mean, you're basically getting it for the time period that it would have until it would have been added to the, you know, to the, to the lineup. But I think it was inevitable. I mean, how long are they supposed to hold some of these giant blockbusters? I think Mulan had a, a budget of like $200 million, yeah. something like that. And so it's like how long are they supposed to hold – these giant films without release and they're just, you know, they're not getting any kind of return on their investment and they, you know, and all, yeah, I, I just think, and then there was the, you know, so there was that early on in the, in, in the quarantine uh, months here, uh, trolls, the trolls sequel trolls. Oh World, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whatever it was. They released the, They released that straight to on demand or iTunes or whatever it was. And they, um, you know, it outpaced the original film. Um, like it outgrossed the original film in just five weeks. So I think that that's kind of an important thing. You know, you've got all these people that are in their houses. They need new content. How long are, how long are these big corporations supposed to hold these films? Um, and, yeah, I mean, I just don't see what the the big issue is. I mean, thirty dollars. I mean, that's two tickets. That's two tickets. You know. Oh, I'll tell you the big issue, Corey Smith. I have a big issue right here. By the way, Ray, I will get to your question because I do like that question. We're gonna we'll finish this up because he asked about uh, House of the Dragon. We'll get to that. Lisa says I'm excited about that. I wanted to see Mulan, but not read this in the theater. Movie looks really great. Donnie Yen is in it. I think it looks good too. I really do, Lisa. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, here's my issue with that. <clears throat> I agree, and I've heard people saying, like, 
oh, $30 is the price of two tickets, or like three if you don't live in like a city or something. Like, okay, that's true. But you know why they have to charge you that much at a movie theater for tickets? Because they have to, you know, maintain the equipment and pay the employees and like actually show the movies and have the prints or whatever. Like they have overhead. My problem with this is that there is no overhead here. They are streaming it directly to everybody. Like their cost is essentially zero because, I mean, I don't know exactly how they do this. I imagine they load it up onto the Disney Plus website like every other thing they do, and it's just available. And to for them to be charging $30 on top of a thing you're already paying for something that's basically costing them nothing, I don't like that at all. I think that's skeevy. I think they should either ratchet the price way down to maybe match what they would have made at the box office, something close to it, and release it. And, and by the way, and they are releasing it in some other territories um, that don't have Disney Plus yet. Or I wouldn't mind giving it to people for free. It's a rough time. You're Disney. You have a lot of money anyway, and it costs you nothing to do this. So that's my problem with it. Uh, right. It costs you nothing to do it, but they are specifically trying to recoup the cost of making the movie. And so, you know, it's hard, I think, for them to say, here's a $200 million movie. And we're basically hoping that enough new subscribers subscribe to the service to offset the cost of the movie. And I got to think, I mean, that's an astronomical amount of subscribers because I mean, how much is Disney plus like $8, $10, seven bucks. Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking, how do you, I mean, $7 divided by 200 million. I mean, that's way too many new subscribers to justify it. So I, I don't know. I see both ways. I mean, maybe $30 is a little high, but I, I think, yeah, a little bit high, but I think they still had to charge something because they are giving you what would have been a, you know, a summer blockbuster film straight to your, to your living room. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, $30 might be a little high, but I don't, you know, if you were wanting to go see that film, you're probably willing to pay $30 to go see it. And I mean, yeah, you would get the theater experience, but then you're also getting the, you're not only spending $30. I mean, when I go to the movies, I'm spending about $75, a because I go to draft house and we get dinner and we get four or five beers or a bottle of wine. Stuff, yeah. You know, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's that, that big of a deal. Um, I just, I guess my thing was, if anything, it might limit, um, you know, who sees the movie that might've seen it otherwise. And I think that's kind of my bigger deal to see, especially with a, a film that they didn't whitewash. It's a completely Chinese cast and, no. Oh, and now you're kind of relegating it to your streaming service. And I know it's an incredibly popular streaming service, but you know, with some some films like that, it, I just kind of wonder, you know, and we can talk about Black Widow in this respect too, where it's a female headlined film that you know people are also saying, why don't you release that to to Disney Plus? And it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you have these films that are that are breaking new ground in some ways, and now they're being re- relegated to their streaming service. So. To me, that would be my bigger concern, not paying $30, but the fact that now it's going to be relegated to a streaming service that not everybody has. Gotcha. Okay. I have so many points. All right. Um, I'm not against them charging something. I think $30 is highway robbery. Um, I also think it's weird. Like, if you're going to charge something, why not make it available to everybody that's not subscribers? 
You said right. like that, people. Yeah, that goes to my weird. Yeah. Um, also, about Disney Plus subscriptions, I will note that they projected they would have like 60 million by 2024. They're already at like 57 million, like not even a year out. The coronavirus, I guess, helped a lot. So they're they're making bank on this thing. That's undeniable. That's definitely true. And yeah, I, I would make it available to everybody. I think that's too much considering the circumstances. And I do agree with you that, yeah, it, it is unfortunate that you're not getting ex, like the kind of big screen exposure for these, in a way, groundbreaking movies. It should have been a really good year. I think this is like the most interesting I've been in a Disney remake, like one of those Disney remake things. Right. Pretty much since they started, like I think I saw that Beauty and the Beast one. I was like, that was fine, but this one looks pretty good. I had another point, but I've been I've lost it in all my well, rage. I um, mean, I would just I would circle back to you know we're, we're talking about the importance of releasing these films to to wide audiences and and not just relegating it to the streaming service. And if you know Hollywood is all about return on your investment, so if we want to see more films like this. If we want to see more films with foreign casts or female-led casts or people of color, whatever you want to say, you know, then they have to show – somebody's going to have to show on a sheet this is how much that film made. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so to me, I kind of see it both ways. Yes, the, the company is profiting off this one film, but in a way – it would be good for the industry if it did profit off it because it would lead oh, to sure. more, more films of that. So, whereas if they just release it to to the streaming service, it's kind of hard to paint it the same success. I mean, yeah, they could they could have viewership numbers and they could say this is the same amount of people that would have gone and seen it in a theater, blah blah blah. It would have projected to make X amount of money, so we should make Mulan two or whatever. But I, yeah. So I I think I see it both ways. I I do think, yeah, $30 is a little high, but if they charge something for it, then they can say, here's sort of the box office success of the film. Therefore we should make another film like this or something like that. At the same time. I mean, like putting movies on streaming, like that's the future. Like there's an argument that like, maybe you should just go ahead and do it. I mean, the old guard coming on Netflix, superhero drama kind of exploded out of nowhere there's a straight streaming, no money movie. I mean, that's the way probably a lot of movies are going to start getting released anyway. So maybe the argument, like the counter to that argument, would be if this is the future, you might as well start finding a new model of how to measure success because a lot of theaters are probably scared right now. I think justifiably that they're going to have to readjust what place they have when it comes to the movie going experience. Yeah. And I, but I mean, that's the other thing too, is like you said, everybody's adjusting. So, I mean, we see $30 on this one and maybe it doesn't do as well. And the next one they say, okay, it's going to be 25. So, I mean, (laughs) yeah, maybe, you know what I mean? In in a way, I think it's too early to jump on this as some sort of industry standard when they're still trying to figure it out. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I hate to like cut giant mega corporations slack. Yeah. Uh, stop it. But I, I mean, like we're not talking about something that they've been doing. I mean, they're, they are just kind of throwing up their hands and saying we, we have to release it at some point. And I am not, I won't be shocked if, 
you know, if this film does pretty well, Black Widow comes out, you know, shortly after it straight to the streaming service. Um, because yeah, they have to release these things at some point. So gotta do it. All right. Um, I think we argued that in a nice fun circle. I got them no slack. I want it for five dollars and I want it yesterday. All right. Let's read some of our comments because we have some good comments going on. Ray says, I'm running out of content and stuff to watch, though I have already binged on Umbrella Academy, which we're going to talk about in just a second, Ray. We'll get to that in a moment. Lisa says, I wonder if films are streaming now. Would studios release them to theaters when they open up eventually? I wonder that, too. I mean, I think, like, theaters are starting to get afraid that they're just not going to get these movies at all. Like, there was a like CEO of a British film studio that just was tweeting out earlier today, like, oh, thanks a lot, Disney. So glad that my uh, movie theater train is going to be in such good health after you're taking away these movies from us. We're going to be out here in the cold, something like that. So I hope so, too. I bet they will do some re-releases, Lisa, when things open back up, but we'll see. Um, Julie says that she feels sorry for movie theaters, especially for the future. It's going to be a long time before they get back on their feet, if they ever do, especially if movies get shown on telly. It's a hard decision. I definitely agree with that. And finally, Ray asked, um, just a kind of a quick detour before we get into the final third of our segment, um, do we see any actors in the lead roles of House of the Dragon, Corey? Do I dreamcast Dance of the Dragons for like a quick second? I don't know. It's so hard to, you know, the, the typical... I think the trend is that who's a, a blonde actress, who's a fair skinned actress or, or whatnot, because they're talking you know, wigs exist. I'm just saying right. like, it's, it's like <laughs> could play the anybody, neither Amelia Clark nor Lena Heady were blonde. Right. Exactly. So it's like, everybody wants to dream cast, uh, you know, whoever's the, the young blonde right now. And, and I just, I mean, I think that they'll go with, with, someone unknown i just don't see them so i think i think they do the same thing as they did on game of thrones and that it's going to be someone relatively unknown you might have someone like a sean bean or, or like the other prequel had um naomi watts naomi watts i just don't i, I don't think that it's going to be you know because the overhead on these shows is so high they can't uh-huh. really afford to have this star-studded cast of, of well-known, you know, well-established, um, performers. So I don't know. I, I hate to throw out names. I just think like, because like I said, I think it's going to end up being people we've never heard of, or they've done, you know, a couple projects here or there, something like that. That I think it's going to be people with short IMDb lists. Yeah. I agree with you. I think it should be. Um, I did get into my head as like a fun dreamcast, and I can't shake it out that Florence Pugh would make a good Rhaenyra Targaryen. I think she's really talented, about the right age. Although I totally did fall into the blonde trap, because even I had to tell myself, Dan, they're going to wear wigs anyway. No one's hair is that blonde. Like, no right. one has Targaryen blonde hair. Right. But I think she has the look. I think she has the talent. So that's my pick. Um, unknowns for pretty much everybody, and Florence Pugh for Rhaenyra Targaryen. Or the one person we know. Yes. There we go. Um, by the way, if anybody here wants to have more of our scintillating insights in the form of extra videos, extra articles, and a monthly prize, feel free to check out the Wick Club. All you got to do is buy a Wick uh, Winner's Coming t-shirt. And you get access to a whole galaxy of special content. Here's a link. 
peruse it at your leisure. Ooh. All right. Finally, Corey, you and I have both watched, this is for you, Ray, uh, the second season of The Umbrella Academy. It came out on Netflix this past Friday. Um, I'll just start it off. What do you think? So I thought okay, I actually, I, I lied. Just really, really fast. Um, Umbrella Academy, superhero drama on Netflix. Dysfunctional Family of Superheroes has wacky time traveling adventures. Go. Yeah, no, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was an improvement on season one um, and that they kind of tighten things up. And yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely offbeat and off kilter. And um, I mean, it should be said they're, they're adopted siblings. So that's why they all look completely different. Um, but I right. loved it. I thought it was, it was great. It was hard to stop watching. Um, I definitely said you stayed up late to finish it one night and I did the same thing. Like, you know, because that was really good. Uh, the soundtrack is amazing. Flat out amazing. I mean, they use music in ways that, that you just don't really expect. Um, I, there's a, uh, I forget the name of the song, but there's a kiss, a uh, song that they use for a pivotal fight scene, um, and you're like, this. The lyrics have nothing to do with what's going on, but it works. So here's they, a cover of Billie Eilish's "Bad Guy," but it's like a punk version for no particular reason during a fight scene. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. And so they just the, it it works really well. And I, I mean, I love the show. I love seeing the. You know, it's interesting when, you know, a lot of superhero shows, they're not, you know, they're all people that have, you know, they're all friends or, or comrades or whatever you want to call it. But in this, there's the there's the dysfunctional family dynamic to it. And they're all uh, siblings. And so you get that interaction, which is which is always interesting to me um, because it's different from like a, you know, parental interaction or, you know, they don't there's. It, you know, there's just, they all kind of grew up in a, their dad is kind of an asshole. And uh, if we can say that. And, and so they all have these issues. And so it's just, it's a lot of fun to see. I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I think fun is definitely the operative word with this show. I agree with you. Like season one, I thought was good. Like um, I thought it kind of rambled, meandered a bit, especially in the middle bits. And I, I, I thought it was maybe more, more like cute than it was good. Like, oh, that's a that's a fun try you're doing there if you're a wacky superhero show. This season, things really came together in a much better way. Um, you're right; it was totally a bingeable thing. Like, they did a great job of ending on the right moments. You always wanted to watch more, and I, I just love kind of like the handcrafted nature of it. Like, it feels like a show where the writers are in the room going like. We should do this. We should do that. We should do this. And they're all like, yes, yes, yes. Do everything. Like they just have all these, like they say no to nothing. Like, why don't we uh, have it set during uh, JFK assassination? And there's time traveling um, assassins. And there's a monkey who takes care of them. There's a robot mother. And there's sp possibly space aliens at some point. Like they throw a lot at the wall. And in this season, especially, none of it really seemed to get in the way of the other stuff. Like, there were a lot of funny moments. I I really liked uh, Tom Hopper as Luther, number one. I thought he had some really, like, he, he was making me laugh a lot. Like, the contrast between his, like, giant hulking self and his, like, kind of sad sack loser persona he had going on where he would, like, just... Yeah. yeah that, that was great. Like, all the characters are really, really distinct. I loved that. 
Um, but they all have their own personalities, their own way of talking, their own way of moving. Like it just, you can feel like everybody really loved what they were doing. And I think it, it, it made for definitely a, a fun time watching it. Yeah. And at the same time, it, it deals with some, some pretty weighty issues. Yeah, it does. You know, there's, it's not just, it's, I, I don't want to say it's a comedy because it's not a comedy. It, I, I mean, it's very funny, but there's, you know, they, they deal with racism in the 1960s in Dallas. They deal with obviously the, the emotional issues that all the siblings have with their father and each other. Um, you know, you've got someone falling in love and, you know, it, there's a, there's a lot to it. It's, it's not, you know, it, it is a little bit meaty. There, there's some meat to it too. It's not yeah. just these breezy jokes and, you know, one liners and, um, you know, I, so I, I really enjoyed it. And I, and like you said, they, all the characters are super distinct. None of them feel, you know, sometimes the Avengers, yeah. Or some superheroes can kind of feel like they're all basically the same. Um, but they all have, really distinct personalities and um my favorite was always klaus i think oh, klaus, yeah. he's super I'm fun sure. and um you know his his way of dealing with being able to see ghosts and things like that and it's just i think it's a really good show and i hope it does get picked up for a season three because it's it's one of those you know definitely unique and so you feel like you're watching something different than you know some of your other superhero type shows i feel like they're with the buzz it's getting it definitely probably will get picked up the only start stumbling block like is covid right like right. there's things that used to be sure things are no longer certain but yeah i think they definitely proved this season the um, showrunner steve blackman that he can kind of combine like the almost like the energy of it is always right on the edge of becoming too much. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's all, it's always right about to be too quirky with your Swedish covers of Adele songs playing over a Viking funeral of these um, Swedish time traveling assassins with a talking goldfish boss, as Ray pointed out, like yeah. it's, it's, it's always just there. But then you have like some grounded story about Vanya falling in love with um, a Dallas housewife or um, the civil rights material with Allison. And it kind of draws you back. It was like looping back and forth the whole way, but it never quite went off the rails. Like I think it really easily could if they yeah. take like one wrong turn. Yeah, it, it definitely is a show. I mean, yeah, you say a, a goldfish for a boss. You know, he's in a he's in a tube on top of the guy's head and he smokes a cigarette. It definitely it walks that fine line between if they don't pull it off, this is just going to seem stupid. Yes. Uh, but they pull it off. They do. Yeah, it's, it's great. And like I said, yeah, there's there's like some I know it sent me down a rabbit hole on on JFK's assassination, um, <laughs> you know, working my way through Wikipedia and stuff and reading all the different things because it had been a while. And I lived in Dallas for a long time growing up. So oh, yeah? that stuff. And yeah, so it was just, it, there's definitely a lot to it um, beyond just the jokes and the goofy kind of stuff um, there. But um, yeah, so I, I really do hope it, it gets picked up for a season two, because, or I mean three, because there's, it, there's a lot left to explore. Um, you know how all the kids, 
process their the trauma of their trauma. of their childhood with their their dad and um you know losing some of the siblings and things like that so i really i hope it gets picked up because it's it's definitely one of those things where you enjoy it because it's unique and it's different from the other you know other superhero offerings that are out there totally and I, it seems like among commenters, Klaus is the favorite, which I, I'm going to guess he's the favorite among most people because he's just the most entertaining to follow. Yeah, it, it, it'd be hard to believe he's, he's not. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Loved it um, more than I thought I would after the first season. I was a little sad Mary J. Blige wasn't around, but, you know, I'll get over that. Um, yeah, and- but, but in a way, I mean, it's it's nice that they moved on from some stuff because I feel like sometimes the shows, it's like, you know, like in the X-Men movies, Magneto's in every damn one of those things. Like, how many times can you fight Magneto? Or You know what I mean? So, like, I enjoyed that some of the villains were new and they in- introduced different aspects and different areas, oh, things like the that. The Handler yeah. is a great villain. Like, she right. was really fun and had yeah. really great lines and the costumes. Holy crap. Like, yeah, I mean, the costumes, I got to imagine the cast really enjoyed filming this season because the costumes in the set the you know the sets since it's in 1963 yeah yeah so i mean i gotta imagine the sets the costumes the cars you know all that was a lot of fun to play around with for the cast so i just hope you know next season they've done the time traveling thing for two seasons now and kind of like the villains i'm hoping maybe it's a little more uh grounded and doesn't necessarily revolve around the time travel thing but I mean, we'll see. I mean, it seems like they're setting up some sort of alternate reality. Sure. Whatever. We won't we won't spoil it, but it seems like there's something kind of going on. So we'll see. I mean, I'm like I said, I hope it sticks around because it's definitely unique and it's fun to watch stuff that has different takes on on the kind of superhero genre. Completely agree. Yeah. If you haven't watched it, I recommend it. And if you have, um, well, you had a good time. So. Uh, any other thoughts, Corbett? Anything about George R. R. Martin controversies, about uh, streaming releases, about the Umbrella Academy, about life, living, and everything? No, I mean, you know, just to circle back to the streaming thing a little bit, I, I just, I'll, I, my final comment is, I just, I, I find the whole thing kind of fascinating, and I'm, I'm yeah. interested yeah. to see where it goes and how, how the trends change because I do think you know, COVID in, in a way is kind of pushing things fat and pushing things in directions. They might've already been going. Mm-hmm. We're kind of accelerating that. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. So I'm interested to see how that goes and how it changes things. Um, you know, what it does to movie theaters, what it does to streaming services. Um, so I'm interested to see that, you know, whether it's controversy or not, I just, I'm interested to see how it all plays out. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for watching. We'll be back next Wednesday. Like live, Corey, come back absolutely anytime you want. Talk about anything you like. Um, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, wherever podcasts are downloadable. I left the link for the Wick Club for anybody who wants to look into that. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for watching, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>